Hello and welcome to the Blitz Book Club podcast, where our community of bookworms will bring you our thoughts on all things books. My name is Cheryl Till, and for today's special episode, I am joined by some of the authors of this year's Unsweetened Mythos publication to discuss their inspirations and favourite mythology-based books. To start, I would like to acknowledge the Bedigal and Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation and the Ngunnawal people whose land on which UNSW resides. I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and pay my respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening along with us today. This is, was and always will be Aboriginal land. I am joined today by... I'm Vivian Vivian Salcedo. What's the name of your piece, Vivian? Okay, so I wrote uh, Various Spirits Fucking With Me Through the Years, a retelling of related and unrelated events. Thanks for joining us. And I'm Jovan Jones, and I wrote Raw Pustule Sun in the latest mythos. Um, I'm Benedict McGowan, and I wrote uh, An Echo of Embodiment, an essay on collapsing the body into memory. Which is really interesting, and I think also the only essay we have in the um, unsweetened um, journal for this year, actually. Cool. And um, I'm Alexa, and I wrote uh, two pieces. I wrote Types of Fire and The Tower for Unsweetened this year. Yeah, and those were poetry pieces, weren't they, Alexa? Yeah, poetry. Cool. And um, my own piece was called Beneath the Ginkgo Tree, which was a prose. So um, I'm just interested to know, what was everyone's inspiration for each of, their, each of your pieces? And was there any kind of mythology in particular that stood out to you for the piece that you wrote for the journal? Personally, for me, the mythology, I draw, I draw mostly from, or well, almost all, all of it from what's called Panayanan mythology, which is the mythology from the island of Panay, which is like my place of residence. Um, specific creatures or specific stories that I refer to would be the story of the Tiktik and the Manangal. Um, Tiktiks are um, creatures in their own right. They're either used as spotters by ghosts or they're used as um, a way to ref uh, they're used on their own as creatures that feed on fetuses or babies, which is what I also talk about in the story. Then there's the duende, the albulario, the manghihilot, which are healers and creatures as well on their, in their own right, depending on which story or version you refer to. Um, and the puti na espirito versus itong na espirito. These are separate creatures, but then they draw from the same sort of stories, which exist in Panayan mythology and Philippine mythology as a whole. So that's where I draw a lot of the inspiration from. Well, my story was like a, a riff on um, Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker, where which is this um, quite amazing novel-length book where he creates his own idiom and his own dialect. It's sort of like, I guess you could say, Chaucer meets Joyce in that you have to kind of read it out loud to sometimes to follow it. But then if you do, you're kind of missing the constructed nature of the... Uh, the words that he he uh, has constructed and the dialect and set it in a post-nuclear war apocalypse so it's like very sort of primitivist and he's like the first storyteller and so I drew a lot of inspiration on that and he was using a lot of fractured syntax which the editors sort of 
actually stamped out a fair bit of because it's very hard to sustain it for a, a period of time. And I guess in terms of mythology, I was kind of thinking more in astrological mythology and Scorpio, which we're moving to Scorpio season now. So that kind of idea of like Pluto being demoted as a planet and being in the panic room at the back of the universe, brooding and kind of, um, you know, plotting, plotting their revenge kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I uh, wrote um, my essay on um, focusing on a particular scene from Celine Sciamma's uh, film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, which really um, beautifully um, kind of engages with and inter interrogates um, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, I think particularly Ovid's retelling of it. Um, and yeah, the kind of um, the conflict and the collisions in looking and being looked at and um you know playing with this idea of how um the body is uh, really dislocates um its reproduction through mythologizing itself and being looked at um through kind of um confronting this idea of us as this you know substance um solid bodies um with this kind of um, really beautiful depiction of um, our kind of spectral selves. And yeah, um, that's what my essay um, primarily looked at. Sick. And um, yeah, so for uh, the tower, um, I read tarot cards and I own a few decks. So um, mainly it was inspired by the imagery on those decks and how could I combine them and what the card meant to me, I suppose. Um, and then uh, types of fire was inspired by, um, I've always been fascinated by the story of Prometheus, um, specifically like how the punishment would go on eternally and that it was just his punishment, you know, I wanted to reimagine it and see what, they, what if he had someone with him, who helped him, did he have help? So I kind of wrote it from the perspective of like, um, and also inspired by how Greek mythology tends to treat, treat its female characters um, as side pieces to the plot. I wanted to make them more central. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration. Yeah, awesome. And um, my own piece was kind of a collection of microfiction, which I started with the goal of having each piece under 200 words. I think it ended up with each piece under 250, which was not quite what I was going for, but um, there's only so much you can do in such a short space of time. And the idea was to have kind of snapshots of a family portrait that band together to form this kind of like family tree, which echoes the idea of a tree of life. And um, so the title of Beneath the Ginkgo Tree, which was actually the title I came up with later on, not the working title, was based on this idea of like this really strong tree, the, the ginkgo tree, which is I think known as kind of the, um, the oldest tree, so to speak, and very durable. They have some that were bombed in the world wars with nuclear bombs that are still standing today. And they're like known for longevity and endurance. So that kind of idea of this strong family line uh, as the myth that kind of ties it together. So um, did anyone, have anything to say in terms of like what you thought about trying to incorporate myths into your piece itself because I personally 
had my story a lot more family-based. And so I found it actually quite difficult to retrospectively go back and link it to some kind of mythology and fit it into um, the idea which we have in the mythos um, journal, which of course is the main theme, but I would say it's also maybe not as prevalent as you might guess it would be. Yeah, my one definitely was a family mythology. Um, the editors really brought that out um, because they wanted more character development. So initially it was a lot more interior monologue based. And then I was kind of thinking of that Richard Kern film, You Killed Me First, which is set around a, a family dining table and just having this really kind of sour relationship, like an adolescent girl that doesn't like her parents and in this kind of horrible fraught situation. So that was really brought more to the fore. Um, so it sort of had its own internal mythology. I didn't, I actually had another story I submitted that was very much based on biblical mythology and Genesis and they didn't choose that one. So um, I don't know why they chose one that was less mythological. I guess you'd have to ask them, but um, yeah. Definitely family mythology was important to what I was exploring. Yeah, I think Vivian, you said you had a similar thing with that as well, where you had um, written this almost as a joke piece you mentioned. Yes, um, I wrote um, various periods, really mostly as a joke piece. Um, this is a reflection of how I personally regard my mythology, because like I said, I draw from Panayanan mythology and not only that, I live with the belief of belief in Panayanan mythology, because that is the belief of my region and of my people. Um, so when the prompt came out to talk about mythology, um, there was a period where I was thinking, oh, I should probably write about Greek, Roman, or something grand, because when we think about mythology, that's usually where people go to immediately. And then I remembered that, oh, I have my own mythology, but it's not that grand. It's something that's incorporated in my daily life. And I, at the same time, I just kind of had an influx of memories going back from childhood of all the stories I've experienced and all the um, spirits um, and spirit encounters that I've had, which I acknowledge some people might not believe it because again, it's a lived experience that um, is a bit outlandish for a lot. And when I read the prompt, um, remember that I had my own mythology, I had my own experiences. I got a little spiteful and I was like, all right, sure. They want mythology. I'll write all about all of the times the spirits have fucked with me. Um, whoever's editing this, I'm sorry if I'm not allowed to cuss, but that was my actual thought process. Um, so I wrote it really as a joke piece and I wrote it in out of spite because I, there was a period where I was, I was really upset that I was like, why is, why is other mythology so lovely and grand? I mean, of course, there's, there's, um, there's mythology stories that are a little more on the suffering side. And then I remembered my mythology and like my mythology mostly includes spirits fucking with us. Like it's not grand in any way, shape or form. So I really did write various spirits as a joke piece and incorporating mythology in that sense was not that difficult. Again, because it reflects how I view mythology and how we live our beliefs. It's just a part of our daily lives at this point. Thanks. And um, Benny, I know we've had a chat about this outside of the podcast before, but you've also included a lot of actual um, quotes in your essay, which I think links it really strongly to mythology. What was the idea or the inspiration behind drawing directly 
from those sources as part of the essay, which is a little bit of a different format to what you normally see in the space? Yeah, um, no, thank you for that. That's a really great question. I, I did really want to draw on um, a lot of writers um, who are, you know, very much always kind of interrogating, or artists as well, um, interrogating, yeah, the essay is this kind of critical objective uh, format. Um, and I really wanted to kind of um, weave throughout the essay these kind of poetic intrusions of my own that kind of mirrored their approach to looking at bodies as, you know, these very kind of slippery, fluid, um, not stable singularities. And I think that, um, yeah, these, these writers really kind of draw in upon that kind of conflict between the body and memory, um, because mythology is, um, I suppose, a kind of way of remembering, but in itself, um, you know, I think especially dealing with Ovid and um, that particular very poetic retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice when he turns back to look at her um, and the underworld um, on the brink of the earth and um, Celine Sciamma's film, which is all about, you know, painting the body and that conflict between representation and actuality um, and the impossibility to contain, um, to contain that um, through this such beautiful relationship between um, an artist and her subject. I think that yeah, I really wanted to sort of paint the piece rather than um, try and uh, write it. And I think that kind of captures that sort of mythologizing writing in itself as something that's retold and is different every time it's um, related to us. Yeah, yeah, I think that really comes across and it's just really interesting to read. Anyone listening along should definitely check out all of these pieces. And um, last up, Alexa. I know you've touched on this a little bit, but you were talking about um, kind of the feminine aspect, especially in types of fire, I think, that you were looking at in the incorporation of mythology. Did you have any challenges in particular in trying to take on that view? Because I know that a lot of the um, traditional Greek and Roman mythology that we look at tends to focus on kind of like a weaker or a more jealous type of feminine figure that doesn't necessarily have all the strengths that we associate with um, a lot of female figures and characters that we have today. Yeah, well, I try to approach it like taking, basically like subverting that, if you will, like, because definitely, yeah, there's a lot of like that jealousy and undertones of, you know, resentment in female characters in Greek mythology. So I wanted to work with a character who was um, like weak in terms of like, you know, she'd been captured. She was um, alongside with Prometheus. She was receiving the punishment as well. Um, but what if, you know, hearing that from her side of this, like the story where she's still strong, she's still struggling, she's still um, against Prometheus, you know, she's not accepting it per se, because I think that a lot of it in the end, we don't hear from the female perspective, you know, when they, um, when they die or, um, you know, I, Eurydice, we don't hear her perspective when she gets up back to the underworld, you know, so I wanted to do it as a you know, kind of a, a testament to all those female voices in Greek mythology that, you know, that still lost, but what, you know, did they still fight? Were they fighting? Did they have that strength? So I wanted to bring that sort of um, subversion to the voice, um, add more to what originally was there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I definitely had too many male characters and I had to cut them in my poems <laughs> and reorganize it 
um, because, you know, there was a little bit too much presenting Zeus that I had to cut. <laughs> yeah, it is sometimes a challenge, I would say, to try and um, get out of that kind of usual round that you have with mythology, because it is retold so often that sometimes you really have to think outside of the box to try and include things in a new and unique way. Um, so does anyone have a favorite mythology book? Because of course this is a book club episode, so it would be remiss not to discuss any books at all. It's called Wake Siren. I can't remember who it's by, but it is like a bunch of short, short story retellings um, from like a feminist perspective. Um, so it's all of the different, um, sorry, my background's a little bit loud. <laughs> all of the different women from, I believe, Homer's Tales? Um, and, but they're all different stories and some of them are more modern, um, stand out for me would be the Orpheus one where he's like a modern musician and the underworld is just a club. So very fun. Um, oh, that might be it. Yeah. Um, and it was, it's amazing. So would highly recommend read that one. Yeah, I'm currently reading um, Egyptian mythology reinterpreted by Norman Mailer in his Ancient Evenings, and that's really quite fascinating because it's similar to that. It's taking the original ancient mythology and building new stories around it based upon a character that wakes up in a tomb and has gone come back to life from the dead, and he's dealing with all the Egyptian mythology mythological creatures and I just like the polymorphous sort of way they you know grow out of limbs or they scatter limbs in a river and therefore that becomes you know new gods and things it's that's quite fascinating to me I like anything that's about gods or um, the supernatural and is that a fiction or a non-fiction um, kind of book there, Jordan? Because I know that a lot of books that delve into Egyptian mythology tend to be more historically based. Uh, it's fiction. Yeah, it's Norman Mailer wrote it, um, but it's he's drawing on the actual ancient mythology. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm, first thing for me, um, I will say this now, it is quite a bit of a difficulty to name books I quite like, especially in regards to Philippine mythology, because most of our stories are passed down orally. They're spoken and they're very rarely written down. And when they are written down, it's usually a version of a version of a version. So it's been revised so many times. But one that I've been reading recently and one that I really quite like because of how popular and how and I like this also because it's popularized Philippine mythology. Um, it's also been adapted into a series, um, into a show. If you want, if you're on Netflix, you could wa actually watch it. It's called Trece. Um, it's based off the Trece comics. Um, and it incorporates mythology in the way that I like mythology to be incorporated into stories, which is not in the grandiose or sort of out of touch way. Because when they regard or use mythology in the story of Trece, it's in the same way that I would regard mythology in my life, which is that it's just a part of it. It's not something that is unattainable or something that is so far out of my reach as a person. It's something that I sort of live with and experience as a person. So that's why I quite like Tresse and I highly recommend it as a book, comic series and television series if you guys have the time to watch that or look into it. Do you have a preference for which iteration might be your favorite in particular, or is it just kind of a link to the story in general? Mm. 
for Tresa, there is actually one specific story in Tresa that I really quite like, and that is their episode. Um, I think it's just entitled Chanak. Um, a Chanak is a mythological creature in the Philippines. Um, that is basically a child that was that was either left in the woods or died before it was baptized. But the baptized version is, in and of itself is a version of a version because that version came about when Christianity was introduced in the Philippines. So there's a belief that when a child dies before they were baptized, they will turn into a Chanak. But one of the earliest um, versions of that story is that when a child dies and is unwanted by their mother when they die, then the child's spirit just kind of sort of seeks out motherly love for like the entirety of its after existence. And in Tresa, they look into not just the creature, but then the origin of that creature, because it really is quite a heartbreaking sort of origin story for that mythological creature. Um, and the way they handle it is very careful um, because it's a little heart-wrenching, but they don't lose the fact that Tresa is an action comic series or an action series in and of itself. So it's like a really quite nice balance between talking about the mythology, talking about the heartbreaking or the heart-wrenching origins of the creature in question, but also making it exciting and engaging for any audience who is like sort of taking in that media. Yeah, I um, I have a real um, admiration for um, Madeline Miller's novel, The Song of Achilles, um, which, uh, and she has another novel, uh, Circe, which is um, also really wonderful. Um, but I think it's particularly powerful in it really, um, it really deconstructs um, the very hyper-masculine um, sort of, uh, I suppose, prose and format of, and poetry of uh, the Iliad and of Greek mythology, especially in how a lot of um, the figures are these portrayed as these real, you know, these singular beings that have a kind of definitive association. When you think of Achilles, you kind of think of his strength and his speed. And, but then when you think of Aphrodite, you kind of think of sexuality and how gendered that is. Um, and I thought that the novel's particularly sensitive in, I suppose, um, in its gentleness. And there's so much, you know, power in just um, really untangling um, the kind of myth in which the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus is also kind of being reproduced to us um, by showing them as lovers and not, um, you know, not as these kind of um, uh, acquaintances or friends. You the the intimacy is um, I think so particularly powerful in how um, Miller portrays that with the kind of collision of bodies, the violence and the horror of war. Um, so I think that, yeah, that novel um, is, yeah, just particularly powerful um, in that gentleness. It's so like carefully but powerfully um, evokes. I haven't yet read those two. They are on my list. I actually have copies on the shelf waiting for me, but they do sound really interesting. And am I right to say they're young adult fiction? Yeah, I suppose they are. I mean, um, I think, I think you could consider, you definitely could probably consider in that way. Um, I do think that they really, um, I mean, yes, both the Song of Achilles and Circe, I think they kind of also kind of seek 
beyond the kind of confines of genre in that way, um, I definitely recommend um, a book, these books for young readers, but also older readers as well. Um, but yeah, they're definitely, um, they're definitely, I think, um, a sort of testament to how um, fragile genres are in itself as well. Um, yeah, really beautifully done. I do think that young adult fiction does open up a lot of doors in that sense because it kind of like has a lot to do with the imagination even though this is based in mythology a lot of it has to be open-minded when you're approaching something that's been retold many many times which I think young adult is like I think that's why young adult is probably a great kind of genre age group to incorporate mythology into. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think um, the fact as well that you see their relationship progress from um, when they meet as children um, and uh, that that real kind of steadiness, um, that um, unraveling as well, there's all these kind of beautiful contradictions. Um, so I think it's a really kind of, um, yeah, a wonderful testament to the bonds of childhood as well um, and the kind of significance yeah and how we relate um, with one another as we grow older and these burdens and responsibilities are enforced upon us and, and upon our bodies um yeah personally I think there are so many different mythology books that are really really great it's hard to pick one like I like Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman which is kind of like I would describe it as like bedtime stories written for adults and I really liked Ariadne by Jennifer Saint which was like the retelling of regular mythology in quite a standard way but it was quite engaging writing and also um, American Gods which I've talked about many times before on the podcast which incorporates lots of different adaptations from various mythology and various different cultures and a recent one which is like the Winter Night trilogy by Catherine Ardern which is all about Russian folktales and there's so many so many to choose from I feel absolutely terrible that my favorite example for um, mythology fiction is not even a book, which is a terrible thing to say for a book club, but it's Hades Town the musical, because I think that just incorporates it so well and it's so catchy and, you know, it's adjacent to fiction. So I think I think that's something that we can take on board. Yeah, the adaptation, adaptation of fiction, which is interesting in itself. Yeah. Yeah, in relation to that, it's not even a book. It's one of my favorite stories just as a story, but it's not a book. I might as well share it. Um, it's literally just a Tumblr post and it's called God of Arepo. And it, it started with like a very small prompt, but then when it was taken on by, I forgot which user it was, but it was such a lovely flow and a lovely story overall. It was just a, such a heartwarming take on gods in general. And just the process of people forming relationships with the people, with the gods that they believe in or the deities that they adhere to. I'm like, uh, one of my favorite stories. It's just so heartwarming. If you guys want to check it out, it's just God of Arepo. That's all it's called. You'll probably find it if you search for it. And I think that, um, you know, just based on those two points as well and how mythology is um, being formatted in so many different ways now. And I'm particularly thinking of Hades Town the Musical. Um, and also, yeah, Tumblr posts as well, because I think the structure of Tumblr posts really like so beautifully kind of um, reconstructs how we read and um, the kind of um, the sort of regulations of language. I think um, it's very a poetic 
way of expression but um particularly in that you know a lot of Greek myth was kind of retold to us through music and through song and that was how um they were kind of um depicted um and I think that um then literally kind of shifting the myth of um Orpheus and Eurydice into a musical form is so powerful and that it really um pays such like a wonderful homage to how mythology was actually yeah distributed to the public and made accessible through song um and through instruments um it's such a beautiful way to capture that I think. Tumblr is kind of like a scroll as well yeah it's sort of like living document scroll yeah I think I mean all these forms really just challenge what we consider to be like official and unofficial forms of storytelling and the whole thing with mythology and myths in general is just that none of them started off as being an official story in any way shape or form as we know by the fact that there are many many different iterations that come up all the time and all sorts of different endings to different myths as well you can just go online and find hundreds of different myths and I think it's just like a really interesting thing that is a great topic I'm so glad that Axel chose it for this um journal actually because I think it's a great topic that opens itself up to many different avenues and um as we've kind of discussed all our pieces look at very very different things but they all join together and to, under this kind of big umbrella of mythology which I think is amazing yeah yeah you guys all made some awesome points and I totally agree I think that um just the way that we interpret mythology and use mythology our day-to-day -day lives it's just um it's so um permeating now and I think that it's so awesome that um Unsweetened can bring together all of these different mythologies that I haven't heard of before because you know you just get Greek and Roman and I love those Percy Jackson books represent um but um it's amazing to be able to hear about lots of different um mythologies and stories around the world um and that you know uh contemporary um things like like platforms like TikTok are giving um you know representation like voices for different mythology which I think is amazing um so yeah that's me expert yeah I completely agree with that as well I think um there's a lot of power in destabilizing Greek and Roman mythology because um there is such um there is a lot of, there's just so much to consider in actually making the spaces of mythology accessible. Um, and, you know, thinking of how Vivian um, described, you know, um, the mythology in her family and how that's um, kind of reproduced and retold and how, um, how that kind of makes um, mythology um, a possibility for all of us through how we relate with one another rather than with these kind of um, unobtainable um, and grand figures of Greek mythology that do you know, just portray these kind of singular ways of being in the world and um, yeah I think it's there's a real power in, in thinking about how we can relate to one another through mythology um, and have that accessibility um, to the ideas that it portrays for sure. I think with personal mythology, it's interesting that a lot of these myths that have come down to us have been told so many times that like the original event must have been pretty spectacular to have been retold so many different ways, so many different times over the years. So some sometimes I like to try and capture that as if we hadn't been reading the mythology and you're just making it up as you go along or it's happening to you and you're trying to convey that sense of 
this is mythology in the making sort of thing. But um, I mean, I know Emerson said, um, write your own Bible. And I was always confused what he meant. I mean, did he mean copy it out by hand? What do you mean, like create your own Bible, you know, or your own set of mythology, whatever your tradition is, because they're all different versions of the same thing in, when it comes down to it in the end. Well, not the same thing. Sorry, I shouldn't homogenize, but, you know, the same sort of traditions. Yeah, I have to say the choice of using mythos as a prompt or as the focus of the literary journal was such a good move because people regard mythology differently, just as we all do. Um, different cultures will interpret it differently. Different groups will view it and have a different sort of relation to it, relationship to it. And all of these different sorts of relationships and all of these sorts of different um, perspectives towards how mythology is and how mythology is in our lives, each of them has a certain power to it. That is very special to every person or every group. And it's just a, such a lovely thing to explore because sure, we, still, we do have the stories as stories, but how we relate uh, to that story and, or how we see and interpret that stories in our, those stories in our minds, it's such a very special thing. Even those who are not heavy in mytho or not heavily like into mythology know about it to some extent or another. And even just that, it just shows how powerful mythology is, how powerful our relationship to mythology is. And it really is just a lovely thing to be able to talk about and be able to explore um, through writing and through words as in general. Yeah, and I think Vivian, maybe you can also like expand on this potentially but a lot of mythology that we think of traditionally when we think of the word mythology are the things that have then retrospectively been written down but as we've kind of discussed it can also include a lot of like folk tales and what would I guess it's kind of a negative thing to call it superstition but like a lot of what we consider to be superstition it kind of this kind of storytelling I would say gives credibility back to those forms of believing um I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that Oh yeah, my thing about superstition is um, people are very skeptic when I tell them about various spirits and the fact that it was written a lot on personal experience. And this is something I personally accept. Um, anyone who is to the extent superstitious or anyone who believes um, in mythology and incorporates it into the, their daily lives has to accept that there will be skepticism that is attached to that because people one, are probably not familiar with your beliefs, and two, even if they are familiar with your beliefs, they do not have the same lived experience as you. So to the extent that um, I have my own superstitions, I know people will be skeptical of my practices as well. Um, but going back, um, superstitions are basically the babies of uh, mythology stories or, mytho or mythology in general. Like, for me, this is something I actually wrote about and submitted um, because, like I said, uh, mythology and these beliefs are incorporated in my daily life. Um, I never finish a plate of food. Whenever I eat, there will always be a bit of food left behind because it is a local belief, a very small local belief in my area. This is something that no, you will not find written down probably anywhere, but we always believe that there is a guest at our table that we do not see, a friend at the table that will always be with us. And as a courtesy to them, and as a courtesy to the fact that we acknowledge that they are there, even if we do not see them, 
we leave a little bit of food for them, just almost as a saying that, hey, I know you're here. I remember you. Here's a bit of food that I left over for you. So that's a very small superstition that is born of a local belief that is not written down anywhere. So that's how superstition plays a role in my life. And when I went to Australia, a lot of my friends were actually very skeptic of this practice as well. They were like, hey, why don't you finish your food? And I had that moment. Where I was like, oh, do I have to go through the entire thing about mythological practice and belief and spirit and that? So yeah, um, like you said, it gives credibility to the story, but also on my end as a person who has lived experience with this, it leads to a lot of skepticism as well. So, I mean, I think there's also an element of cultural respect that comes along with putting it down in writing in some forms, which is mm. something I really enjoy about sharing um, history and culture through writing, because like you said, there are little practices that we do as an everyday thing that other people might not understand, for instance, like I would never, ever, ever put chopsticks sticking up in a bowl because I've always been taught that that means you're inviting a ghost to eat all your food. Um, and that's maybe something that not everyone gets. But, you know, once you write it down, you include it in a story and it's kind of encoded in this way that can be dispersed and shared. It does become more accepted. And I think that's a great thing about the way in which we're sharing our stories. I'm very superstitious. Like anything that's got if I see something about superstition, even I'm in instantly interested, more interested to read it. Like I loved Vivian's story. I mean, you know, like I, I really related to it, even though I'm from a completely different culture, but just uh, maybe the common thread is that superstition that, you know, you know, I've got a calendar here. I'm not putting it up until it's the right time because that's bad luck. You know, it's just, it's, it is part of people's lives more than they like to admit, I think. Yeah. True. Yeah. I um I remember like we had uh ladders up at work and I would not walk under them. I was just like, you know what? Not today. I had to walk around. Um it's just like a silly, yeah, thing that I believe in. But I'm just like, you know, I don't think like the whole black cats and everything, but there are some superstitions that I just like. Um and especially like uh if you guys watch Practical Magic, um, they do like the superstitions in that one as well. Um, so I think that, again, borrowing from the mythology of different um, media uh, has inspired what I do in my everyday life, I think. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone has a practice, even the most common one of, you know, getting under the blankets and making sure you're all in so the monsters can't grab your feet. <laughs> everyone has something like that. And I think putting a story to it just also maybe helps to explain why we do these things in a way that kind of changes it from this negative connotation of superstition to a more positive or more accepting idea of mythology and culture. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I really agree with that. Um, putting your words or putting your experience down into a story makes it a little more palatable to people to kind of take in and sort of accept because they're like, oh, so it's a legitimate thing. It's so legitimate that you wrote a story about it. <laughs> and I think um, also, yeah, um, on that point, um, the way you kind of approach how you locate your own body within um, telling these stories, um, I remember I was at um, the Isle of Skye a couple of years ago in Scotland and um, we were um, at the Fairy Hills there and our tour guide um, uh, was saying, yeah, with such conviction that 
if you trip or if you fall down because it's quite like a, a bit of like a kind of a treacherous um, sort of terrain but if you trip it's the fairies that are tripping you um, and there's such I think like a, such beauty in kind of how we sort of navigate our own bodies with um, the presence um, or absence of other bodies um, how we kind of see what um, you know we're kind of conditioned not to see I suppose um, because I yeah I have a bit of Celtic ancestry so I'd, I'd heard similar things like that before growing up and that kind of being in that direct atmosphere of a place um, completely then alters how you know how you do relate to these texts and I think writing is such a powerful and beautiful mode of expression in reconstructing space in order to kind of um, detail the atmosphere that sort of occurs when you do kind of um, relate with relate to mythology to, to superstition um, to anything like that there's just so much possibility of like another way of being and another way of expressing yourself and engaging with others in the world that is just um, so uh, necessary I think particularly Okay, so um, just to wrap up, I'm going to ask you all what is on your shelf. So are you currently reading or that have you recently read that you really enjoyed or disliked? Well, I'm currently reading the Cornell West Reader and I like it, but it's a difficult book. It's all philosophy. He's like this, how best to say, he describes himself as a Chekhovian Christian socialist philosopher. And he's dealing a lot with pragma, what is it? It's pra prophetic pragmatism, which is like an Emersonian tradition and all, all sorts of philosophers which, who I haven't read. And he's very um, knotty and gnarly in the way that he writes. So you spend a lot of time unpacking what he's saying and rereading it. It's one of those sort of books, very dense, which is um, he put out an album which had this great track called The N-Word on it, where he deconstructed The N-Word. And that was really accessible. I mean, like Prince is on it. It's like quite popular. So I was expecting him to be this really popular philosopher that made it really accessible. And he doesn't, he really makes you work hard for the nuggets you get out of him. So I'm not sure if I like it or don't like it yet, but it's fascinating me at the moment. So yeah. Okay, for me, um... I recently finished, well, recently, I read this before, but I reread again recently because I wanted to give like my mind a bit of a jog. Um, it's called Legends of Lower God by Maximo de Ramos. Maximo de Ramos is an author in the Philippines who is almost an authority on Philippine mythology because of how much he wrote about Philippine mythology. What he did is basically he went to different areas, collected the stories of locals and put it together in a book. Um, I'm half and half on whether I like it or dislike it. I like it in the sense that it's finally putting our mythology down into on paper, but I dislike it in a way that he doesn't necessarily um, flag um, one where these stories are originating from because it kind of makes it confusing seeing like the regional differences between how people view mythological beliefs or view mythological creatures particularly because there are regional differences. And he doesn't state whether when this story approximately occurred, because there have been um, influences in mythology, um, like pre-colonial, post-colonial Christian influences. So I like it in the sense that it is writing down our, our beliefs, 
but it's making it a little confusing to distinguish the origin and where it's at currently. But I really do respect him as an author because he's doing so much good work for um, for the Philippines and for Philippine for the Filipino culture generally. So I highly recommend it if you guys want like a bit of a crash course on Philippine mythology because it's a good way to start. Sounds good. Yeah, um, I'm reading Tales from the Inner City by Sean Tan right now. Um, and it is also a type of mythology, I suppose, because there are a bunch of short stories um, and they follow different animals, but they're sort of set in like um, dystopia sort of settings. So, you know, there's like this massive shark and um, like the, the idea that a tiger follows you. So very superstitious. Um, the idea that a tiger follows you until you and the tiger will eventually get you. Um, and the only way to ward off the tiger is to wear a mask on the back of your head. Um, and so like how society um, processes that and how they deal with that. Um, and yeah, it's a really interesting um, short story collection. It's, it's technically for children because um, he's a children's author, but um, the stories are actually very profound. So uh, I really, am, I am enjoying that, yeah. Stranger things have happened. Um, I'm currently reading at the moment um, the selected works of Audrey Lord, and um, so it's a really kind of wonderful um, blend of like critical um, text, but then poetic kind of interruptions and um, kind of reminiscing on um, you know her personal histories. Um, I think that particular approach um, is so significant um, to, you know, intersectional feminism, queer theory, um, critical race theory, all these um, all these things that uh, she writes about, but there's this particularly beautiful um, chapter called My Mother's Mortar, I think, where she um, really kind of, I suppose if we're talking about mythology, it, it really is kind of an exploration in how we mythologize objects and how we um, kind of relate to um, our family, our friends and to each other um, and the kind of practice of, um, of, of sharing skills um, in this case of cooking and um, how it feels, you know, um, pounding the mortar um, or pounding the ingredients in the mortar with her whole body um, and having that, um, you know, really fascinating relationship with her mother almost as kind of like building the atmosphere in that act. Um, so yeah, a really, a really incredible writer. I'm very much enjoying at the moment. Yeah, I love Audrey Lord. Yeah, yeah, I've read some of her work and I think it is really powerful. Um, she has like essays and I think some poetry as well, which just really conveys ideas in a way that is, I would say not just engaging, but kind of empowering to the reader themselves, which I think is a skill in itself. Um, yeah, and the book that I have just finished reading is um, from the Winter Night Trilogy, which I mentioned before, called The Winter of the Witch is the last book, and apologies to anyone listening on the podcast before who has heard me talk about the first book, The Bear and the Nightingale. Um, I think previously I mentioned I loved the trilogy so much because I couldn't find any fault with it. I have finally found some faults. Um, the timeline is a complete mess. And at one point, I think, so they mentioned, spoilers alert, they mentioned, you know, her brother, um, he leaves and goes to be a monk and it's at, at odds with the main character who is um, someone who can see all the folk creatures or the unseen charity, I think. Apologies if I 
pronounce that incorrectly. Um, and, you know, in the first book, they mentioned that he leaves when she's seven years old. And then in the last book, they're like, oh, he left the year after their mother died and the mother died in childbirth, having the main character. And it annoys me so much. Um, but other than that, I would say it's a great set of books. I think it really explores this idea of like folk stories as mythology really, really well. And um, it's just something that's really interesting. I personally like it even better than the wildly popular Shadow and Bone series, which is also fantasy and historically based and a little bit Russian based. So um, yeah, I would definitely recommend that as a read if you don't mind too much about some inconsistencies, but I think it's quite an impressive book. Um, and the other thing I've just started is actually These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong, which is the book that we will be discussing on the next episode of the podcast. So if you would like to read along with us, our next book is For Dark Academia, like I've just said, These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. And if you would like to read the Unsweetened pieces for yourself, you will be able to find the link to the 2021 Unsweetened Mythos publication in the description, or you can listen to the audiobook right here on Spotify. And until next time, thank you for listening along.